Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 59, Pope Aegyptus I. Aegyptus. Aegyptus. This is a name that has driven me a little bit crazy, so I am going to say right up front, I may not be pronouncing this correctly. I'll spell it for you. It is A-G-A-P-E-T-U-S. Does it mean anything? It is a Greek name that means beloved. Boring. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's pretty standard of the time. And as we can tell by saying he is the first, there will be another Aegyptus, and I will stick with this pronunciation because it works for me. And I have come to this conclusion, kind of how some languages say the word Egypt. So yeah, we're going with Aegyptus, and that that is it. If it's wrong, um, blow me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just that's escalated quickly. I know. I know cuz I it was like I looked on so many pronunciation websites. It's just yeah, nothing. So, on that note, Aegyptus. And Aegyptus was born in Rome into a noble family of senatorial rank. And for this early life, we're going to jump around a little bit because we need to talk about his family. Ooh, a family. Yeah, we've already kind of talked a little bit about his family, and that is because his father was Gordianus, the priest who served in the Church of Saints Paul and John. And we've talked about him before because he was the priest who was killed in the riot ambush when Pope Symmachus attempted to attend the Third Synod in defense of his papacy in 501. You can hear more about that in episode 53. We also know that Aegyptus was also at this riot when his father died, and just barely escaped himself from also being stoned to death. Oh no. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little, because we need to go back to his father. Because his name is fairly significant. Now, in Felix III's episode, which is episode 50, we talked about Felix's son, Gordianus, who became a priest. And though this Gordianus, who is Aegyptus' father, is not that Gordianus, Felix's son, there is this kind of naming structure that we see repeated in families. So historians posit that it's pretty reasonable that Aegyptus' father, Gordianus, was a descendant of Felix's son, Gordianus. And then Pope Gregory I, who's coming up and we know was descended from Felix, also had a father named Gordianus, so that could be another generation of the same family. Ah, uh, yes. It is a George Foreman thing. It is absolutely a George Foreman thing. When, when I was in grade school, I went to school with this kid named Vito Santini. Oh my. And he was several generations in of Vito Santini. <laughs> I mean, that is a great name. If you were going to have a name and be named after someone, Vito Santini is a pretty sick one to be. But yeah, so anytime we talk about a father called Gordianus, we're probably talking about someone from this specific family. And this is also kind of important because this family is pretty significantly wealthy. And they have this massive home on the Calian Hill that gets referenced as being a palace. So they are, they are very well off. And we'll come back to that as well with Gregory. So, after his father's death, 
Agaptus also founded a library on the property that was his home, and the remains of this part of the library can still be seen today. A notation in the Liber Pontificalis tells us the details, saying, The house of Gordianus stood near the church of Saints John and Paul, which he served, and his son Aegyptus founded there a library of Greek and Latin theology. A dedicatory inscription was painted upon the wall above the bookcases and the frescoed portraits of church fathers. The inscription was copied in after years and may be found in Duchenne. Gregory I converted this house into a monastery. That's something we'll come back to, but this is a first. We have not had a papal library before in the old family home. So anyways, we know that Aegyptus followed his father into the clergy, also serving at the Church of Saints John and Paul, like his father, and that, like his father, he was also a supporter of Symmachus. And sometime after the riot that killed his father, probably around 502, Aegyptus is consecrated as a deacon. And then, by the time of his election, on May 13th of 535, Aegyptus was an archdeacon. So he's doing fairly well, but we don't know a whole lot about him at this point before he becomes pope. So, Aegyptus becomes the new pope, and immediately when he does, there's something pressing on his mind that he needs to take care of before he does anything else. And this brings us back to Pope Boniface II, and the anathema against his deceased papal rival Dioscorus that he had the whole entire Roman clergy sign assent to in his first synod after becoming the legitimate pope. Boniface, as we saw in his episode, retracted and burned one of his other decrees on being able to appoint his own successor after the major resentment of the clergy. But somehow the anathema against Dioscorus had stayed on the church records. Interestingly, too, the way that Boniface had had Dioscorus anathematized was on a charge of simony, when we know all that really happened was that he was the one who had had the legitimate level of support, and Boniface was just trying to discredit him after his death. But now that Aegyptus was pope, he felt compelled to resolve this oversight. Aegyptus had been one of those 86% of the clergy that had been a Dioscoran supporter over Boniface, and he'd been a staunch opponent of the concept of a pope choosing his own successor. So, probably more than most, he took this slight against the legitimately elected pope rather poorly and want to see it rectified. So, his first official act as pope was to call a synod of the clergy so that they could burn the anathema against Dioscorus and strike it from all church records to rehabilitate Dioscorus's honor. We talked about that a little bit in the Patreon episode. He also used this opportunity to answer the letter that had come from the Council of Carthage, intended for Pope John II, the poor devil, looking for the Pope to confirm their decisions. Briefly, remember, the Council of Carthage had been called to come to a determination about the Arians or Arian Lapsi, who were now seeking to join or rejoin the church after the end of the Vandal Kingdom and the readmission of Africa to the Eastern Empire. The council had determined that the Lapsi would be readmitted, but no person who had been an Arian or who had lapsed into Arianism would be eligible for holy order, and anyone who had been ordained previous would now only be accepted as laity. So basically, if you were a Lapsi or you were an Arian, you cannot be a priest, you can't be a deacon, you just have to be a layperson, but you can come back to the church, no penance, just 
just come back. And Aegyptus agreed with this decision and issued his public confirmation validating the council. Around the same time that the synod was happening, he also received an appeal from Contumeliosis of Rie, who we talked about last week, who was deposed on accusations of scandalous adultery, which he had admitted to, and then John had had him confined to a monastery for penance. Aegyptus accepted his appeal and wrote to Caesarius of Arles to instruct him to hold a new trial in the presence of papal legates. One source even said that Aegyptus chastised Caesarius for being cruel and unjust in his original trial, but another source, the Dictionary of Christian Biography and Literature by Sir William Smith, says that his letter expressed that he wished Caesarius would have waited to execute John's instruction. And this is really weird. Why Why would, if you got a letter from the Pope saying, this dude is bad news, confine him to a monastery, why would you wait? This is an order from the Pope, so of course he would carry it out. But I digress. It just doesn't make any sense to me why he would be like, you really should have waited before you followed the order of the Pope, and I'm saying this as the Pope. Right. Not very smart. So he accepted that Contumeliosis should have an appeal, and the outcome of the actual appeal hasn't been recorded, so it's not entirely definite what happened to him, but my guess is that he remained deposed, because we probably would have heard about it otherwise. Beyond that, in his early papacy, Aegyptus also worked towards expanding the clergy and founding significant religious buildings. He held holy ordinations for 11 bishops and four deacons. He worked with Cassiodorus, a very famous religious scholar, to assist him in the foundation of a monastery at Vivarium, which is near Squillaci in Italy, Calabria. And he had goals of founding a new Christian university in Rome to rival the spiritual centers that had been established elsewhere, like Alexandria and Nisibis in Turkey. But for reasons that we're going to get to, he wasn't able to accomplish that goal. And this, with that little, you know, foreshadowing, is where we need to pause from what's going on with Aegyptus and revisit our Ostrogothic rulers as well as the Eastern Empire. So about six months before Aegyptus became Pope, the king, Athalaric, died around the age of 17 on October 2nd of 534. He wasn't all that important, but we know that his mother, Queen Amalasuntha, had acted as his regent and had been the real leader for the duration of his reign. And now that Athalaric was dead... Queen Amalasuntha was ruling in her own independent right. But we know, we know how this generally goes for women in this time period. And we also know that this wasn't really her intention to remain this way, as evidenced in a letter that she sent to Emperor Justinian, which we have preserved in Cassiodorus, that announces her son's death, but also makes mention of her plans to elevate her cousin, Theodahad, to share the throne with her, given that he had an extremely firm standing with the military, which happened to be kind of one of the greater threats against her, since she was more pro-Roman, and the military would be very pro-Ostrogothic only. So, by allying with her cousin and sharing the power, she was looking to unify her kingdom 
and anyone who might not have been her supporter initially would come under with Theoda had when she elevated him. Makes sense, right? Unfortunately for Queen Amalasantha, King Theodahad is a literal piece of trash, and within a few months of joint rule, he had Amalasuntha arrested and imprisoned on an island where, once she was out of sight, she was murdered on April 30th of what? 535. Yeah, he's the worst. He's the absolute worst. Yeah, he just like, oh, you're gonna make me king? How wonderful of you. I'm gonna have you murdered in your bathtub. Because he's garbage. <sighs> but here's the rub for Trashy Theoda had. Queen Amalasuntha had a very close political relationship with the Eastern Empire. It was what made certain militaristic factions not particularly happy with her, but it meant that she and the Emperor Justinian, that massive Emperor Justinian, he's in her corner. And once he's made aware of her death, he has an excellent justification to wage war on the Ostrogothic kingdom and oh so conveniently retake Italy and absorb what had once been lost to the Empire. This is beginning to sound like the plot of John Wick 2. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very convenient how it all fits together, isn't it? Yeah. And that one had a murder in the bathtub, too. It did. And then, oh, she was murdered in the bathtub, and now I can do a thing. Now I can go to war. How convenient. And extra conveniently, Justinian just happened to have this military general, Belisarius, who was in the process of, you know, doing just that. You know, reconquering territory lost to the Empire, like Africa and Dalmatia. We found John Wick. Hmm. Oh, Belisarius would be an excellent John Wick. That is a... Yeah. Yeah. That is very fitting. And look, it just so happens that he's literally just finished conquering and securing Sicily. Right off the coast of Italy. What a dink! Shocking. I know. Just the stars have aligned for that one. So... Justinian sends word to said excellent military general John Wick Belisarius to turn his army towards the Italian mainland and take it back because, oh, they've just murdered their queen that we're very close with. How convenient! So, this is about the moment that Theodahad realizes that he's in big trouble for being a literal trash bag. And this is where we circle back to the Pope in our story. So, Theodahad was aware, as was the whole European world at this point, that Emperor Justinian was a very orthodox man, with a great deal of respect for the Apostolic See. But, of course, Theodahad was the king of Italy, which included Rome and the Pope. So, he feels like he might have some leverage here. So he turns to the Pope, and depending on what source you want to go, go by. He either commanded him or begged him to go to Justinian in Constantinople and use his papal influence to convince Justinian to call off the invasion on Italy. So the letters of Cassiodorus present a pretty expedient and aggressive version of this, saying, quote, At that time, Theodahad, the king of the Goths, writing to the Pope and the Roman Senate, threatens not only the senators, 
but also their wives, sons, and daughters if they could not convince the emperor to remove his army from the Italic soil. But the pope, for the same cause, having been charged with the embassy, left for Constantinople, then, at the presence of the prince, he advocated for the cause of the embassy. And I've sourced that from uh, Theoda had a platonic king on the collapse of the Ostrogothic Italy by Massimiliano Vitello. Great name. So, as the source tells us, Aegyptus did leave for Constantinople with five bishops and a fairly large embassy in the midwinter of 535, and due to the intense costs of the journey, Pope Aegyptus left the sacred vessels of the church in the possession of the Senate, basically as a deposit-slash-mortgage for the gold that the Senate has given the embassy to make assurance of their journey. And we know this because we have Cassiodorus's letters from when he served as prefect, instructing the return of the sacred vessels to the church after the embassy had reached Constantinople. Which they did in February of 536, and Pope Aegyptus was welcomed very warmly with excitement and fanfare. But before we get to his meeting, there is a story about the journey to Constantinople to mention, and it's time for... Miracles. We get a, a brief, <laughs> a brief miracle. It's not a very exciting miracle, but this story comes from Father Alban Butler, who credits it to the writings of Pope Gregory I, who accounts that on the way to Constantinople, while Pope Aegyptus was in Greece, he came upon a man who was, quote, lame and dumb. And by way of a miracle, Aegyptus cured him. Miracles. <laughs> Short story, I can't quote it because Alban Butler didn't source where in Gregory's writings he got it from, and there are so many, but we haven't had a papal miracle for a while, so there you go. But anyways, Pope Aegyptus, now in Constantinople, meets with Emperor Justinian and advocates for Theodahad as planned, attempting to get Justinian to agree to suspend the invasion of Italy. Unfortunately for Aegyptus, Justinian couldn't be convinced. You know, the preparations for invasion were way too far along, and everything had just come together so conveniently, and his motivation to reclaim what had been lost to the Empire was too strong. We also don't know how hard exactly Aegyptus would have pushed, either, because Justinian was Orthodox, and Theodahad was an Arian Ostrogoth who was threatening to kill his own Senate. So... Maybe there was more benefit for the church in allowing the invasion to happen. And we'll get to how that all played out, just not in this episode. So, as far as his political embassy went, Aegyptus was unsuccessful. But almost immediately after this was made apparent to him that he wasn't going to be effective in convincing Justinian, a much bigger and more important issue as far as the Pope was concerned cropped up, brought to him by the clergy, and completely diverting his attention. And this issue was the controversy around the current bishop of Constantinople, Anthemis or Anthemius, depending on what source you look at. And there are a lot of concerns about Anthemis. First off, Anthemis had been originally consecrated to a different bishopric. He was originally the bishop of Trebizond, which is a smaller region of Turkey, and he had left that episcopal seat to assume the bishopric of Constantinople. And as we have seen in the past, this is a huge no-no. 
Moreover, unlike the last time that we saw a bishop shifting from one seat to another, this was not a case of all the clergy being on board. They hadn't elected or assented to Anthemis becoming the Bishop of Constantinople. He'd only been put in that place due to the influence of the Empress Theodora, who is Justinian's wife. Some sources suggest that in having Anthemis made the Bishop of Constantinople, Theodora was scheming both to elevate her favorite and undermine the Council of Chalcedon and Orthodoxy, because the other big no-no about Anthemis is that he is 100% a monophysite. So, major problem. And just as a side note, we are going to put it here. The participation of Theodora in this, or at least her intentions, should be taken with a grain of salt, because most of the historians of the era, particularly Procopius, hated Theodora and used every opportunity to cast her in a bad light, even though we know, yeah, she was probably at least a myophysite, if not fully monophysite, but there is no way to talk about what happens over the next couple of years without coming back to Theodora as an active participant with our next couple of popes. So it's really important that we say here, she's definitely, definitely going to start looking like a straight, hardcore Disney villain. Like, if we were to take the sources at face value, she's responsible for all the evils that happen in the world at this point. And she probably did play some part in them, but we have to just at least acknowledge once that maybe it wasn't as bad as it's gonna seem. So now I've said it. So, when all the clergy brought all of these majorly concerning issues to Aegyptus, the Pope ordered Bishop Anthemus to produce a written personal confession of faith to verify his adherence to the Chalcedonian definition and to return to the see that he was originally consecrated to. Right? Look, I'm not going to just depose you on the spot. I want to see what you're really about, and you have to go back to the bishopric where you're supposed to be. Anthemus was not so receptive to these commands and refused both, so Aegyptus called his bluff and deposed him immediately. But this deeply offended someone. The Empress. And Justinian. Oh, both of them. Yeah. By most accounts, Justinian believed that Anthemus was an orthodox leader. So either he was deceived by the bishop, or by his wife, of course. So to find the Pope deposing someone that he assented to be bishop on grounds of heresy is not something that this emperor is going to take very kindly to. And for all this positive relations and deference that Justinian generally had for the Pope, in this moment, he threatened to banish the Pope for deposing his bishop. And what happens next would be a perfect movie moment. So you have to picture at this point the two men standing face to face, the powerful Eastern Emperor incensed, having just threatened to exile the Pope in the same way that a painful, long-standing tradition has been established. And the Pope looks at him, dead in the face, and issues his famous retort recorded in the Liber Pontificalis. I indeed am a sinner. Yet, with eager longing, have I come to gaze upon the most Christian Emperor Justinian. In his place, I find a Diocletian, whose threats, however, terrify me not. 
those are some cojones. Yeah. And this had a profound effect on Justinian. The Pope is staring him down and saying, you don't scare me. And so Justinian backs down and he accepts the Pope's steadfast resistance as confirmation of Anthemis's heresy and assents to the Pope's order of deposition. So he wins this one. Then Aegyptus remained in Constantinople to witness the legal election of a proper successor, who was a cleric called Menes. And for the first time in history, the Pope personally consecrated a bishop to their episcopal seat on March 10th of 536. And Themis, on the other hand, according to the sources, was hidden in Empress Theodora's women's quarters or in a monastic seclusion at the monastery that she founded at Psyche after his deposition for 12 years until she died. Oh, wow. So she might have hidden this man among her ladies for 12 years. Remember when I said it starts looking like a Disney villain? It said that when she died and all of the ladies were dismissed, he was, like, found amongst them. And they're like, what is going on? So Where'd this man come from? Yeah, it's weird. So, and just to smooth things over and make sure that everything was left clear and free with no hard feelings or suspicions of heretical belief, the emperor prepared his own personal confession of the faith and submitted it to the pope. So, Aegyptus accepted the confession proudly. And I will quote again from the Duchenne Liber Pontificalis, which says, Although he could not admit in a layman write the teaching of religion, yet he observed with pleasure that the zeal of the emperor was in perfect accord with the decisions of the fathers. Just to make sure they actually both agree on everything theological, they've now sorted that. Now, unfortunately, Aegyptus fell ill and died while still in Constantinople on April 22nd of 536. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, he didn't get to even make it back to Rome. One source said a funeral was held in Constantinople for him, quote, like no bishop or emperor had ever received, but there's no mention of what that actually looked like, so we don't know. But what we do know for sure is that his body was placed into a lead coffin to be transported all the way back to Rome. And there it was buried at the atrium of St. Peter's, but his tomb was destroyed in the construction of new St. Peter's, and there is no recorded epitaph fragment left for him. Alas. So that's Aegyptus. And now we must rate him. Papatum infallium. He successfully deposed a Monophysite bishop in the largest Eastern Patriarchate without too much kerfuffle. He defended the canons restricting the movement of a bishop from one seat to another. He rehabilitated the antipope Dioscorus by burning the anathema against him. He confirmed the decisions of the Council of Carthage, reinforcing the reunification of the church in North Africa. So there's some good stuff. The only bad thing, really, is that he accepted the appeal of that Bishop of Rie. It's an odd choice. We don't know how it's ended, so we can't really hold that against him. But there's some good stuff there. He also straight up stared down the emperor and said, I am more holy than you and you don't scare me. So, what do you think he's worth? You know, I'm leaning toward a six or a seven. Okay, it's pretty good. Yeah. What do you want to give him? Let's give him like a seven. Okay. I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him a five because it's pretty good, but he didn't have 
a whole lot of opportunity to do much for the actual church. It was all just kind of happening in the works. So I think a 12 is a pretty good score for him. Fructus prohibitum. Okay. He used the sacred vessels of the church as collateral. To me, this is one step away from simony, and although none of the sources condemn him for this in any way, to me it seems pretty scandalous. You know, yeah, can we give him like a four? A four, okay, yeah. We could give him, are you going to give him a four by yourself, or do you want to give him a four in total? A four in total, I feel, might yeah. be good, because like, that's not okay. <laughs> but also, it's not as bad as some other things. They literally needed an order from the prefect to get them back at some point, so. It's weird. It's just weird. But it's worth a couple points, so we'll give him a four. Seculari impactum. So he didn't succeed in preventing the invasion of Italy by Belisarius, but we don't know if he actually wanted to, and we don't know if that was going to be something that was possible. Again, he faced down the threats of an emperor and ended up with the emperor submitting a confession of faith for his approval. That's pretty huge. And he appears in Dante's Divine Comedy. Ooh, that's like an auto point. Yeah, definitely an auto point from me. And this time, he gets to be in paradise instead of hell, so. Why? Because he's, you know, just, well, I'll read, you know, we're not going to do what we did when we had an, a whole canto to read because he appears in literally one line. So I'm going to just read you the one line, which is in Canto 9, 16 to 18, which says, But blessed Agyptus, he who was the supreme pastor, to the faith sincere, pointed me out of the way by words of his. That's it. But he's there. And so that's definitely an auto point. But the fact that he stared down the emperor, this he's getting some serious chops from me in this, so I'm going to give him a seven. All right, I'm going to give him a six. But then that auto point gives him a 7 as well. Yeah, so he gets a 14. I do have to say he doesn't get to join the Hell Club because he's not in the Hell Club. He is in the Heaven Club, and there are going to be popes who end up in the Heaven Club. And I think there there are definitely at least two popes that I can think of that end up in the, you know, the Medium Place Club. Purgatory Club, which sounds weird, so we'll go with the Medium Place Club. They can hang out with Mindy Sinclair. Yeah, absolutely. Fossium Sanctus. Okay, so I'm going to send you his photo now. Here you go. It's it's different. Color scheme is different. It is, which is like completely different from what I'm looking at in a different channel because <laughs> a friend of mine had to cut off someone's mustache and put it in a resin mold. Why? Uh, a gift for this person's wife. Th that is gross. I, yeah, I agree. That is super gross. And please, please no one ever, ever think that this would be a good gift for me. Oh, no. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. What the hell is that? It's a mustache and a resin mold. Oh, I don't think I could hate anything more in my entire life than that. <laughs> That is an abomination. But I digress, because <laughs> I had to click away to look at the Pope from this mustache that was staring at me. 
Jesus, I have seen the face of the devil. <laughs> Let's um look back at a pope now. Yeah, yeah. So this pope looks a lot better than a mustache and a resin mold. He gets a point, just a token point for for giving me something to scroll away from that mustache. <laughs> I hate it. Uh <laughs> I love how curly all of his hair is. Yeah, that I was trying to... There's a word that comes to mind when I look at all of his straggly-woogly kind of flyaways going on. He is definitely a poofy, curly man. It's different. The color scheme is different. We don't generally have many that are turned facing this way. Is it significant in any way? I don't think so. I don't think so. I have to go in at some point the next time that I'm in Rome. Because all of these are from St. Paul's. Like this, that all these images that we use are from St. Paul's. And there is, like, they have images right up to Pope Francis. So we will continue to be using them. And the next time that I am in Rome, I want to go in and talk to them and have them tell me everything about them. Because there is nothing online in detail about them. What do you think it's worth? I can give him a flat five. There's nothing yeah, nothing super great about him. He's got his hair is just different. It's not particularly special. He kind of reminds me of someone, but again, it's one of those things you can't really quite peg. Mm-hmm. One of those. Yeah, we're going to give him a standard 2.5 when all the scores are tabulated. But I'm going to send you another image of him that... I hate, and I was prepared to tell you that I have strong feelings about this, but then you sent me that mustache, and all of the hatred has been removed from me. So here you go. There's oh. something to hate. He just looks smug and awful, and I hate it. He does look terribly smug. I don't like it. I just... Yeah, so I don't hate this as much as I did before. This this weird, smug image of the Pope. There, There is another one from the bad artist. Which, again, is entirely different. Oh, boy. Yeah. There, there is an actor who, I don't know what his name is, but it totally reminds me of him. He's, he's in so many historical things, but the one that is coming to mind is that in, he plays in the Borgias, and he is sort of like the, he is the librarian kind of nuncio who finds all of the canonical precedents for the popes and i'm sure if i looked far enough through their cast list i would find him simon mcburney when he gets a little bit more heavy it's this guy you've seen him in so many things oh yeah i've seen that man yeah so it reminds me of that guy when he plays a lot of the historical characters in which he plays so yeah johannes from the borgias so yeah, I'm glad we're not writing on those images in particular, because, you know, I was expecting to have more negative feelings, but you've just purged me of all of that, so we can move on. Tempest Pontificus. So he was Pope from May 13, 535, to April 22nd of 536, which is almost one year, giving him a score of 0.25. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yes, he is a saint, and his feast day is September 20th. But there also is a Saint Agyptus, who is an early Christian martyr with a feast day of April 6th, so we don't want to confuse the two. But yeah, he gets to be a saint. He is not a patron saint. 
So what would you like to make him the patron saint of? Not hipster mustaches and resin molds. Oh, God, that is so specific. And no, there should not be a saint for that. That is a demon role. I think that he can be the patron saint of telling people off. Telling people off. I love it. Because he did that, and he did that well. And, you know, standing up against someone, like, standing up against your boss. Yeah. Standing up against, you know, someone who is in a superior role to you in some way, shape, or fashion. Yeah, you need Saint Aegyptus. He will look after you. He'll be in your corner. He will be. And that's nice. I like it. So, that brings us to his total score, which is very good. He did very well. He scored a 33.75. Wow. Yeah, really good. Really super good. We haven't had anybody in the 30s club since 6 to 3. And he's, aside from, you know, our big scorers lately, he, he's doing really well. It puts him in 8th place overall. Nice. So then I can ask you, and we can have a discussion about this, is he papal enough and pizzazzy enough with a legacy and popery worthy of a papal bull? Um, you know, everything that happened in his life is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, let's lean towards yes. All right. I, I, you know what? If you're willing to give it to him, I am too, because I just like him. <laughs> there, he stood up to Justinian, who... Spoiler alert is um not going to be nice to everybody. <laughs> He's only nice so, to some people. Yeah, so for him to have done that when I am looking on this with some level of hindsight, I guess, or foresight, perhaps, that that is a really, really ballsy thing to do. It really is. And the fact that he went and he made this journey and he was able to even depose the bishop of constantinople really 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 plays that papal primacy thing into place so i am happy i am happy to say yes to him congratulations Aegyptus. with that we have some thank yous to make because we have new patrons who need to be absolved of their temporal sins so that is trevor cully thank you very much ego te absolvo we need to thank Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium, as always. And I also want to make a very special thank you to DG on Twitter. His handle is at Italo-Caribbean. And today he sent us a photoshopped picture of Felix showing up 15 minutes late with a Starbucks. <laughs> Because he was the patron saint of being 15 minutes late, he sent it to us during Boniface's week instead of Felix's week. I love week. it. And there could be nothing better. So this image, he's literally, instead of carrying a church, he is carrying a Starbucks. <laughs> a literal full Starbucks. And I love it. This is my favorite. So thank you for that, because you totally made my day and made me laugh out loud in the middle of a very quiet room. So thank you for that. And thank you to the rest of you for listening. And we could say goodbye. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.